someone shared that in treatment, a dad told his daughter, I will go vegan. So then that's one person doing the ethical things you need to have happen because you can't go vegan. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello. Today's podcast is taken from the first part of a conversation that I had with J.D. Arlette. J.D. is a force to be reckoned with in the ED advocacy world. And we initially met, I think, on Facebook in one of the early advocacy groups that I had joined. Since then, we are both active members in the International Eating Disorders Action Group, as well as World Eating Disorder Action Day. J.D. is also involved in programs at UCSD that provide help for parents and sufferers of eating disorders that are currently going through eating disorder treatment. Very hands-on. We need more people like J.D. in this world. People who are willing to put themselves on the line for what they believe in and know to be true. I'm sure that she'll hate me calling her a supermum, but that's honestly how I think of her. And it's my podcast, so I can say what I like. Here's the first part of our conversation, and as always, all the links to the resources that we mentioned are in the show notes. First thing that I asked JD was about her experience with family-based therapy. Here's her answer. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the UCSD, being with UCSD and um, able to see what they're doing with it, even in the year since our treatment has um, finished, since I'm a parent mentor for them and on their parent advisory council, it's been pretty incredible to see how it's growing and spreading to help older um, older people, you know, um, especially young adults. They do a transitional program for the kids who are um, 18 to 24 but still dependent on their parents, um, which I think is fantastic because I know our experience with my daughter being sick at 17 and then turning 18, you know, not too long after, was that the additional time passed when she was 18 was very necessary to keep her, uh, get her to a place of a recovery that she could handle independently. Right. So I think that, um, you know, and I think also your experience was sort of doing FBT with yourself and then um, Carrie Arnold, um, who wrote Decoding Anorexia, sort of very influential in understanding, you know, she had to move home as an adult, you know, a true adult, to have her parents help her because nothing else had worked. Right. Um, and so I think it's very much that um, there's got to be – it's much easier if there's an external force to aid the person in their recovery. And that's what FBD provides is like a scaffolding around someone so that really, you know, at the end of the day, the only choice is getting well. Yes. Now, I'd, li- um, I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about the details of that, that transition scheme. But um, to start with, can you – can you let us know how you actually got into that position? Oh, UCSD. So, um, so we are very, very lucky. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about this work is that um, we had a situation where every single thing went right. Um, in that, I noticed really quickly some behaviors around food and things that you know, she had excuses for now being lactose intolerant, glucose, you know, gl- uh, gluten intolerant, that type of thing. So we were at the pediatrician right away, which it would be very easy for that not to happen with someone her age. She was a high school senior and very independent, um, but we were lucky that it did. The pediatrician was very on top of it, um, and then we're just geographically lucky. Excuse me. <clears throat> we are geographically lucky in that we live in San Diego, 
And um, unbeknownst to me, just where our pediatrician sent us was University of California at San Diego, and their eating disorders program is uh, just tops in the world. Um, so we were very geographically lucky that we live in San Diego and that the uh, UC San Diego program is um, a premier program. And in fact, Yvonne Eisler, who's one of the founding fathers of Modsley, uh, was integral in um, starting and consulting on that program. So basically, we walked into the creme de la creme experience, and it was still, you know, horrible, nightmare, you know, all sorts of stuff, just completely like you're, you know, you go down the rabbit hole and you're in a world where up is down and right is left and all that type of thing. So one of the things at UCSD was um, you have, it's a partial hospitalization program. So you're there um, six days a week. They also require a lot of parent um, involvement. So parents are expected to be involved 12 hours a week. And um, one of the, then as you go through the program near the end of the time, you're on what's called individualized outpatient treatment or IOP. So it's down to three days, um, like three hours a day, five days a week, and then three days a week. And then, you know, so it's sort of a gradually lessening of um, the treatment. So uh, the facility that we're at, UCSD is in a different building now, but the one where we were, when we were there in 2012 was, um, it just got to be jam-packed. So it was so, so crowded with people that literally um, when everybody was there on a Saturday, we would take up the whole floor. So it was just like a can of sardines. And um, one week I went on a Saturday and it was not so crowded. And I was like, what's going on here? Why aren't there so many people? And Dr. Um, Roxanne Rockwell, who runs the adolescent program, said, oh, you know, we started, we we quit having the IOP people come because it was too crowded. And I almost started crying. I said, oh, my gosh, you can't do that. Those are the people that are giving me hope because I could see people with their kids and their kids were smiling and eating and, you know, they were near the end of their time ready to go and I just would look at that and go, oh, my gosh, that could be us. Yeah. That's, you know, how did they do that? I want to do that. And um, and they would, you know, when you did parent processing, you'd get so much wisdom from them. So Dr. Rockwell is really a um, sort of a huge innovator and sort of grabs, if an idea seems good, she just runs with it. So she thought, well, we could have um, parents, families who've done well come back and, you know, kind of give us in, insight into how the program goes and then maybe um, mentor um, other parents coming in. So that's um, sort of how that started. So I was in the second wave of um, parents that once my daughter was discharged that they invited in to do that. So what we do is um, one Saturday a month we go and we spend the Saturday uh, with the people at the program. And so we're just in with the parent processing group. So it might be, they might break out. So a group where it's all moms of people with anorexia and um, you know, just sort of are there, they're telling their stories, they might have questions, we might be able to share lived experience that helps them, that type of thing. And so that's led to um, UCSD doing some, actually, you know, trying to quantify the peer support component of it and studying that. And so, you know, it's just, um, so that's sort of the genesis of what they do with parents. And I'm They've also supported us in going to conferences and covering conference fees for things like International Conference of Eating Disorders. And so we then talk to other programs there and other parents and um, through the, you know, 
online stuff. Other parents are realizing the value of this and asking for it. So it's starting to spread, and I think it's really important because you can be the best clinician in the world, but if you have not refed your own child, it's a very different experience. I can imagine, and what a fantastic resource that must be. It, it absolutely is. I mean, it just 100% is. And in, you know, at the very basic level, it's simply knowing you're not alone, that other people have had this experience and survived it. And um, just the, you know, the, the real kitchen table tools of, you know, how people did it and how that can, how you can, you know, build on what they've done and learn from it. And especially since so much of what you have to do seems so drastic, mm-hmm. um, so counterintuitive. I mean, I know in my case, my daughter was the youngest of four. She was, uh, as I said, a high school senior. She knew where she was going to college. She had her own car. She had a job. I was effectively done parenting her. And as with, you know, many kids with anorexia, she wasn't particularly a difficult child to, to raise anyway. So, and then also my personal style is not very, um, not authoritarian, you know, and more, um, allowing the kids to have their own opinions and question things and that stuff. And, um, you know, I kind of, that's just who I am as a person. So I was being asked to be somebody not only completely different from who I was, but almost in a really kind of ironic and nasty twist. I was actually asking to being needing to be the caricature of the lifetime TV controlling mom, you know? So it's like, wow, everything that you learned up until now, if you hadn't really looked into this, that you thought caused anorexia really has nothing to do with causing anorexia. And, oh, by the way, you need to become that person to help her get over anorexia. There's an irony in there somewhere, isn't there? There is incredible irony in that, absolutely. You know, the irony of for so many years and still now, so many people tend to think that it's over-controlling mothers that cause anorexia. So that doesn't cause it at all, but it might just fix it. It it really is crazy. I mean, and um, I also tell people, parents, to prepare for the pushback from your child, which in our case was pretty substantial, um, that it's like they've had a, um, you've had a secret agent living in your house the entire life. So you've been raising this kid and their brain is all full of knowing you and knowing what your pressure points are and that type of thing. And so when the anorexia is trying to knock you off your game, um, that kind of thing, it's using everything it knows about you. In my case, it was really able to use the fact that she knew I didn't want to be controlling and you know, that that was part of that stereotype as well. So, um, to, to sometimes painful effect. So hearing from other people that you can get through that stage as well. Um, because I do think one of the hugest reasons why people don't want to do FBT is they think it's going to ruin their relationship with their child. Um, And so if they can understand that that's not actually your child that's talking like that, that's their disorder. And really their being, I will use imagery like, you know, there's a terrorist inside their brain holding a gun to their, to them, making those words come out of their mouth. Yeah, and that's what it feels like. Um, and from a sufferer's point of view, um, it works both ways because before I had uh, spoken to anybody else who had suffered from anorexia or had an experience with it, and Feast really helped me here in showing me that, wow, all children and all adults and anyone with anorexia, when they are put under pressure to eat, they turn into this, well, I was a raging bitch. 
Right. And I, because I had, I didn't know that to start with. And, you know, I hated the things that I would say to my parents when they tried to get me to eat, but it's like, I could not control not saying them and not being as hurtful as I possibly could towards them. And I thought that I was just a horrible, I must be a horrible, horrible person to be able to say these things to my parents who I know love me. And that doesn't help. Thinking that about oneself doesn't help anything. But when I could understand, I'm not a horrible person, I have this disease, and it flips out when it's put under pressure. Yeah, I I think that's actually really interesting to hear that I don't know I've ever heard of anyone um, affected speaking of it like you just did, which I think was, you know, really uh, eloquent and telling. Um, I find it very interesting that um, my daughter does not not remember the worst, um, the worst pieces. Yeah, I mean, she remembers in general, and sometimes because we'll speak together at to parents groups at UCSD. Um, and last time we did this, we were leaving and she said, sure sounds a lot easier when you tell it after the fact, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And I said, it, it really does because <laughs> you can't go through the minutia of every little battle. Um, so it sounds, you know, like glossy, you know, oh, it was hard and we had trouble and now it's okay, which really uh, the devil is definitely in the details when it comes to this, this sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I do remember, I remember the very real hate I would feel towards my mother if she even questioned if I'd eaten enough that day. It, it would just rise out of me. I, seeing red is a term that I can only use to describe it. It's like something would flush over my, my brain and I'd almost shake. I was that angry with yeah. her for even asking that. Um, and I knew even then that's not a normal reaction <laughs> to right. someone asking if you've eaten enough, but I couldn't control it. So the only conclusion, not knowing that that was a normal aspect of anorexia, the only conclusion that I could come to about that was that I'm a crazy, horrible person. Right. And that did not um, inspire me to go and talk to a doctor or anybody about it because I did my best to hide that I, because I thought I was crazy and should be locked up. <laughs> um, right. Because no, I was I... having these crazy, hateful thoughts towards my parents just if they asked me to eat. And that didn't inspire me to go and actually find help because I thought no one can understand this. This is, this is so, um, you know, no one's going to just do anything other than say you're crazy and you need to be locked up. Right, right, yeah. It, it's that that reaction which people just don't understand unless you've you know seen it happen or as you have experienced it, ha- it happen. Um, you just can't fathom it. And one of the huge things with um, UCSD and some of the other really you know shining programs like ERC does a fantastic Family Week Center for Balanced Living. Even for adults of all ages, brings carers in in a slightly different way to support someone, but that psychoeducation piece of really making the parents and carers and siblings understand what's happening in the brain um, through things like Dr. Laura Hill's TED Talk and, you know, sometimes doing exercises where you basically have to run the gauntlet of of the eating disorder voices being shouted at you, those types of things, um, I think are so necessary because once you understand that, your capacity becomes so much greater. and I try and tell people now, um, you know, if you can get to a place where you absorb hate and radiate love, that's really what you're looking for in terms of being able to help your child. And it's hard because you have to put aside all normal uh, preconceptions of, um, you know, societal niceties, you know, how we treat each other. And then um, 
it's very common for parents and especially for dads, and this was an issue we had briefly, um, to look at this as lack of discipline. You know, this is just a this is just a snotty kid who doesn't know how to behave and how dare they speak to you like that and that type of thing, which is now, um, you know, I kind of try, try and tell people that's all noise. So you have to have a very clear idea of what you're trying to accomplish. And in the beginning, it should just be that meal in, that snack in. So if part of that meal ended up on the ceiling, but at the end of it, the kid ate everything they were supposed to eat, as much as you want to be frustrated about that, you succeeded. Yeah. And so reframing it and understanding that and just really understanding that all of that, um, all of that other stuff, anything that gets between you and either getting the food in them or stopping a behavior is all noise. And you just have to learn to tune it out. And I got to a place, um, and I have a poem that I wrote about this that I share with, um, parents often that, that find it, um, some people find it helpful. I got to a place where I drew strength from the battles. And um, that was when we really started to make headway was when I understood that th when it's when the, there's no fighting going on, that's because the eating disorder is winning. When there's fighting going on, that's because I'm winning. Mm -hmm. So I plan on winning. So there's going to be, you know, there was a fair amount of fighting. And um, but that was really, really helpful to be able to reframe it like that. Yes, I, I can, I've had similar experiences as a sufferer. I had to redefine, you know, if, if I have to battle really hard with my eating disorder at a mealtime, it means that, you know, it's like the harder the eating disorder screams, the more scared it is that it's gonna lose and the more I'm actually winning. You know? Yeah. And when, it, when it's quiet, it's probably being a little bit more devious and you know so actually you know redefining those battles in my head and saying okay it's a good thing if your eating disorder is screaming mad at you because it means that you're killing it absolutely yes and that's what i say it's like death by a thousand paper cuts or you know high calorie mm -hmm. snacks and meals and every one of those is going to cause that that screaming and um from the parental perspective as i tell people too there's such a drive to want to hold on to normal life and and all of that kind of thing and what i've really experienced now in um so over four four and a half years since our daughter went into treatment is the people who are most successful and spend the least amount of time dwelling in this horrible sphere are the people who really just go for it right off the bat and they put uh, everything else on hold Right. And really they expect the battles and they, and they, you know, and they deal with them as they come because every accommodation that you make empowers the eating disorder. And, but it's so, it, it all sounds insane really. And I do, I, I, there's, when I'm talking to people online, cause I'll connect with someone and then oftentimes we go into a private chat and I'll always, you know, preface it by saying, look, I realize I, I sound like a straight up lunatic that what I'm saying sounds like madness. That's, you know, why would you want to have the battle? Why would you want to do that? What, why would we not try and make this as easy as possible? Um, and so, um, you know, I kind of have to explain that. And then it's one of those things where in, in the beginning, people I'm sure do think I'm crazy. And then, you know, a month later, they're coming back and going, okay, so tell me more about that because I'm beginning to see where you're coming from. Yeah. I often tell people who are unsure 
you know, or, and a lot of times people get really bad advice from clinicians and things like that in terms of, you know, what you really need to do is not make this an issue. So just don't mention it at all or that type of thing. Um, I tell people to do the cupcake test, you know, and if they're not sure if their kid is really sick or, or whatever, I'd say, bring a cupcake home for, you know, for both of you bring cupcakes home and go, look, um, you know, I stopped by this bakery that was on one of those, you know, shows or whatever, you know, that, that, um, are so popular and, you know, here, let's have a cupcake and see what ensues. Um, because it's pretty unlikely that if someone's really, really sick, that that's going to go over well at all. And yeah. when- I'm just thinking back to if, if my mother had done that when I was sick, the cupcake would have, yeah. Um, it would have been a rage fit for sure. Which yeah. again, it sounds crazy. Why would somebody go into a screaming rage? Cause you, you brought them a cupcake home. Right. And it, so it really does a nice illustration of that. Um, so I advise people to do that a lot. And then uh, sometimes too, I'll, when I first connect with someone, I'll say, let me tell you, let me tell you about your kid. Cause people, cause we all think, um, and all our kids are, you know, even as people, we know we're all individuals and, you know, special in our own ways and all that type of thing. And there's a lot of consistencies and temperament and things like that of people who go on to develop particularly anorexia. And so I'll, I will go and give a description of, you know, good kid, high achieving, works hard, driven, all this kind of stuff. And they'll go, wow, how did you know? And I said, oh, no, that was my daughter I just described to you. Yeah. Um, to, you know, sort of give them a flavor of that. Because really, I don't know a single parent who in the initial days isn't casting about thinking that there's some way we're different from this. You know, there was some way my kid is different. There's some way my family is different. Um, I tell people we, we went into our intake program, uh, intake appointment at UCSD, and I was 100% sure there was some three night a week, uh, you know, two hours a night kind of thing that was specifically designed for the overachievers among us, like me, who caught it early and um, that kind of thing. And it was just the universe is just laughing at you at that point because, no, you're not, you're not different. Your kid's not different. You're not special. This is remarkably consistent in, in terms of what happens once the anorexia takes hold. Um, and also, you know, frequently in, in the types of people it affects. I always tell people, I've met a ton of people with anorexia at this point in my life. And to a person, they're, they're all beautiful people, um, with amazing souls. They're talented, they're intelligent. I mean, they really are, um, you know, as a group that, that temperament and however that genetics combine really just very cool people, um, with this little wiring snafu happening. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've ever met a low IQ person with anorexia either. It's just, no. And, and on that too, it's one thing that I've started saying to, um, you know, parents and clinicians sometimes too, wow, you know, kids with anorexia, um, in particular are, you know, bright and, um, driven and all these things, you know, how shocking that they have parents who have a similar approach. So in terms of, you know, like you mentioned how integral feast was to you, which I think for so many of us, I mean, I know that, um, I feel like I owe everything to feast for, and to Laura Collins for, you know, dragging the world, kicking and screaming to recognize the power of parents and to get um, clinicians to listen. And, and I've seen, even in the four years I've been part of this, a huge change since I started going to conferences in terms of the um, 
acceptance of the carer role and the wisdom of carers and clinicians starting to ask us, you know, you give us some insight on how we can best develop plans to, uh, or programs and things that, that will help you help your children. Um, so that's really, really huge. Um, and, um, and I totally forgot where I was going with that thought. That's okay, because I do have a question for you. Um, Good. You've mentioned a couple of times that you um, caught your daughter's anorexia early on. Mm -hmm. Was it on your radar? Why do you think you were able to do that? So it was not on my radar at all. And in fact, um, I have a couple of, I think I, have, I did a presentation at NIDA, and I joke in the beginning that I parented my kids like a cafe stir or babble how not to have your child have an eating disorder, um, you know, sort of checklist thing. So I had the old preconceived notions about it would be unhealthy relationships with food or too controlling, that type of thing. And I do have um, disordered eating in my, in my family of origin. So never wanted to pass. I, I think in retrospect, my mom might have been a binge eater, but of a slender build. So it wouldn't be something that anybody would have ever... Um, would have ever noticed so but just from that desire of not wanting to have a household that engaged in disordered eating um was very um you know didn't make people finish their plates wasn't a short order cook but didn't make you eat what i served if you didn't like it you know you could have toast and a banana some yogurt that type of thing um and in particular my youngest daughter um who was affected was really seemed to be an intuitive eater her entire life and so um so again, and even being, I was at the time, um, I had just been teaching high school. So you learn nothing in becoming a teacher and working in a high school. It, whatever you do know is not going to be right anyway at this point. Um, so it was not on my radar at all. Um, however, one of the things is my, um, and my husband and my kids are all big milk drinkers. And I don't drink milk at all. Don't like milk, never have liked milk. Um, and so at that point, um, her the two older kids were already in college in different states. Her, um, the brother right ahead of her had just left, um, for college. And then my husband, because the economy was working in Salt Lake city. And so I noticed that the milk wasn't going and kind of was like, hmm, you know, cause she was a big milk drinker. Why aren't you drinking, you know, why aren't you drinking milk? And so then, um, you know, Oh, it's bothering my stomach now and I can't eat dairy anymore and I must be lactose intolerant. So that's, that's why we were at the doctor's within six weeks after she first began a healthy eating makeover. So, um, so was being monitored during that time. So I think it was just a little bit of a fluke. I don't know. Um, otherwise if I would have noticed, although she did have a considerable weight loss, you know, once it started was, you know, pretty much, um, happened very, very quickly. Yeah, and it's um, what you just said there about her excuses of, oh, I must be lactose intolerant. It just spells, you know, it's, there's never a, a dumb excuse from a person with anorexia. Uh, there's never, oh, I just, I'm, I'm not going to drink milk because I'm suddenly scared that I'm too fat. Or it's, it's never straightforward, is it? It's always oh, this no. really intelligent way around it. So it looks like an absolutely viable excuse. Oh, I mean, 100%. As I always say, that they uh, can make you feel like the crazy one very quickly. With my daughter, um, she's, being the youngest of four, a very social person. And um, we we live in a neighborhood that had just a ton of kids on this cul-de-sac. And so 
her, I mean, she was just always spending the night at someone else's house, having them spend the night here. Um, just, you know, running with a group of kids and that type of thing. And, um, one of the things I noticed along with the, um, with the lactose intolerance, she wasn't going out at all anywhere. And this is her senior year of high school. And when I questioned it, you know, like what, what's going on? I got, as you said, the, the brilliant manipulation. The very first one was, um, Oh, mommy, um, you know, this is the first time I've ever been home with no brothers and sisters and I'm going to be in college next year. And so I just want to spend my time with you, you know, Boom, with, love it. With, right. And I'm like polishing my halo mom of the year. You know, my <laughs> daughter just loves me so much. She wants to stay home with me. Um, and then even then it started to get a little weird because at this point, she's not even socializing with her best friend, you know, with nobody. And, um, you know, I kind of am questioning it again. Oh, you know how senior year is? Everyone parties, they drink, and they smoke. And, you know, that I don't want to get caught up in all of that. You know, I'm just, uh, you know, I want to stay focused on my, you know, studies and getting to college and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm like... I've raised such a wise young woman, you know, making these healthy choices for herself. Um, so very good smokescreen to throw me off her track for a while. Yeah, and you, just just like the disease does, using the ones that they know are going to appeal and that you're going to want to believe and want to run with. Absolutely, and I think um, one of the things when you're talking to people too about, um, you know, because people say, oh, first world problem or whatever, um, I think it's a very fascinating area to think about in terms of the anorexia always having a really good societally normed cover. Um, and I go back to when I talk to people, the fasting saints, who yes. at that point, there was no Photoshop, so that's not what it was about. Um, but religion, religious fasting was a very, very good cover. And who's going to argue with that? Yes, I think it was St. Catherine fasted herself to death, didn't she, in oh, yeah. what, 16, 1700s or something? Absolutely. And um, religion was the excuse then. And there were many, actually, fasting saints that died from what... We, I mean, right now, these days, we'd look at it and say, that's anorexia. But rather than using society as an excuse... Well, they still are using society as an excuse, just a heavily religious society. Right, right. And we just, and I think that sort of ties into one of the reasons why, um, you know, there seems to be a rise. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is diagnosis. People who would never have gotten diagnosed before are. Um, but also, we are in a toxic cultural stew in terms of, those, there's plenty of cover. There's plenty of ways that you can, uh, you can mask this to be societally acceptable and even to be... Um, you know, sort of congratulated for it right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I get a bad rep because I am so, so tough on, on sort of diet cultures and um, veganisms. And, but I do try and make it very clear that I, I have absolutely nothing against a person being vegan. And for some people, that's a wonderful thing. In fact, if I didn't have an eating disorder, if I didn't have anorexia, that those genetics, maybe I would be, and I'd be able to do so very healthily, but I can't because I have those genetics that any food restriction just gets turned around in my head. And, um, I, you know, but there's so many of those viable excuses out there that it's very hard for a person that does have an eating disorder to recover and to not know the difference between am I a vegan or uh, dairy-free or gluten-free because that's actually good for me and I need to, or am I doing that because my eating disorder wants me to do it? 
I, oh, I, this is so true. And I have to say, and I don't know that I've ever told you before how often I use you in talking to parents as an example of someone who understands that your health is as important as the ethics of, you know, whatever it is that that's going on in terms of, um, that would make people be vegans and things like that. Um, that, you know, that you've made a conscious decision that for you, that those are not possible choices and that you continue to challenge yourself with foods far into your recovery, simply because you understand that's a way to keep reminding the eating disorder not going to happen. Yes. And I think it's powerful. And I know I've, I've talked to my daughter about you, um, frequently and I, and I use the, um, you know, what you say and what Carrie um, Arnold uh, says about this a lot, because I think it's absolutely true. In fact, um, it was very interesting in one of the parent pages, someone shared that in treatment, a dad told his daughter, I will go vegan. So then that's one person doing the ethical things you need to have happen because you can't go vegan. Yes. Oh, I love that. We're going to have to leave this here for today. But to that dad who went vegan to aid his daughter's recovery, big props, mate. Stella. Mwah. Next week, JD and I get into more resources for parents, how stories of real-life experiences can be a game-changer for the mindset of a caregiver with a person with an eating disorder, and the real meaning of what it takes to be cruel to be kind. JD, if people want to know more about you, where can they find you? Uh, so my name is uh, J.D. Olette, and I am active on a variety of social media. So um, on Facebook, it is J.D. Olette, which is O-U-E-L-L-E-T-T-E. On Twitter, it is at Juggling Jen, so J-U-G-G-L-I-N-G-J-E-N-N, which is a holdover from my uh, blogging days, but I didn't want to lose all the followers. Um, and on Instagram, at J.D. Olette. Uh, my email address is Denise. Olette at gmail.com and I am always happy to talk to anybody in any context and freely give my information out because uh, I just think it's so important for us all to be able to uh, pass on what we've learned um, through this crucible of uh, it's it's not a skill set anybody wants but once you have it you really should share it. JD you are a rock star thank you and such a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Huge thanks again to JD for everything that she does in the ED world. We've got more great insights from her to come next week. I'm Tabitha Farrar. You can find me at TabithaFarrar.com or on Twitter. My handle is at love underscore fat underscore. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio. goodness do I wish that I could not remember the things that I used to say to my parents when I had an eating disorder it was like something out of the exorcist not even kidding probably worse <laughs>